Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you will. We are in John chapter 12. I believe that's up on the screen. John 12, verses 1, starting in verse 1. Um, we see that in there? Anywhere? Whoever's doing the slides. <laughs> there, she's got it. She's getting it. Uh, John 12. Uh, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, uh, which is one of his favorite towns because he had some best friends in there, which was Lazarus, uh, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. I love that. Just like, I'm just here. I just was raised from the dead. Like, I'm just happy. I'm just, I'm good. Um, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, We're pausing our series on Ephesians to start a series during Lent called Hunger and Thirst. And I feel, uh, we planned this several months ago, but I do feel it's very appropriate as I do feel there is a a palatable hunger uh, stirring and I want to encourage you to think through uh, your life. And um, how do you know you're hungry for God? What are the cues that you feel when you know, I'm hungry for God? Uh, yeah, I've been learning a lot of things uh, lately. I learned this, this week the difference between um, hunger and sight hunger, right? Sight hunger is when you see a chocolate cake and you're like, oh, like, I'm hungry. And then I, I'll eat that. <laughs> I, I'm hungry now because I see a chocolate cake. Um, and so what does it look like to have that sight hun- hunger or hear hunger with God to, you know, like to, to be looking for the hummings of God? I think about a humming when you, you know, anybody ever watch birds, uh, hummingbirds? They say if you want to find a hummingbird, you listen for the hum. What does it look like to be walking around the city looking for the hum of God, to look for his spirit moving and flowing into this place, to be looking for where he's, he is. Because Jesus comes where he's wanted. He comes where he's wanted. Um, he, he, he doesn't, he's here always. His presence is always here. But like, I'm, my, my heart for you today is that you would um, be wrecked again by the love of God. Like, do you remember the first time you were just completely wrecked by God's love? Like your, your lip was quivering. You, you had to pull over from driving because you couldn't drive anymore. You had to get on your knees. What was the last time? And what was that like? Those parts of us are very meaningful. Now, it's not that we can always reproduce what was in the past. But what does it mean for you in this season of hungering and thirsting for God? Um, so what does it look like? I want to talk about um, this, let this uh, picture of Mary. I want Mary to school us on prayer this morning. I want her to teach us what prayer is like through her acts and what prayer is about. And I basically just have two points, really simple. Prayer is about the love of God. And is about is about receiving God's love, and is about giving God's love. Um, so, cultivating hunger and thirst. There's going to come a time in your life when whatever it is you're putting your energy to is going to not satisfy. It will come a time at some point 
that your ambitions, you'll realize, oh, I'm dust. I'm good dust. From dust I came and dust I shall return. Everything I thought would satisfy didn't satisfy. I don't know if it's already came or if it'll come later. But Solomon ends Ecclesiastes, and the last of his final words are, all of this is meaningless, all of this is meaningless. And he says, fear God, do what he tells you. And that's it. For years, we can go after God in this religious way, right? The status quo way. Um, and, and, and miss everything. Uh, in the beginning of this passage, we see here that they're having a meal in Bethany. Again, one of Jesus' favorite places. Uh, Lazarus is back from the dead. Again, happy to be here. Simon, he's like, I'm no longer a leper. Happy to be here. Uh, Martha's doing her thing, cooking up a storm. Jesus is doing a ministry of healing throughout this previously, right? A woman was bleeding for 12 years. He brings back this little girl from life at the request of her father. He gave blind Bartimaeus his sight. At some point later, he went to a banquet at the home of a man named Simon. And we don't know anything about this except that he used to have leprosy. So it's entirely possible that Jesus had to heal him too. And while he's there at this house, Mary anoints Jesus with, with oil. Oil and anointing was used to anoint prophets and priests and king, and we know Jesus was all three of those. But the disciples, the male disciples, were offended and this completely embarrassed by Mary's act. Just an awkward moment. Can you imagine sitting there, right? Oh, I'm just back from the dead. Hail Jesus, heal me too. And all of a sudden, glass breaks. Oil is coming down all over Jesus' hair, all the way down to his feet. Mary takes her hair and... Provocatively begins to wash Jesus's feet, and it's told that this was a year's wages. I mean, this is the sort of thing that might happen at Caesar's Palace today, or the original Caesar's Palace. But this is happening in a Jewish man's home, and it's a year's worth wages. Think about that: seventy to a hundred k dropped. Um, we don't know where she got this oil. Um, scholars aren't sure. One one hunch is that this was her inheritance. Uh, this would have been uh, uh, the, the gift used to pay a dowry price if she were to ever get married. Um, so she takes this bottle and a value she'll never get back. She decides to say, all of my other futures, my entire future, this is yours, Jesus. If Mary, if, if Mary had any other kind of sense of future, she basically was saying, like, you are my future, Jesus. This is all, I'm pouring this out. Um, So can you imagine the magnitude of this moment? And this moment is a moment when economies collide. There's two economies that collide. Judah says, why this waste? And what I want to talk to you about is the economy of efficiency, which is the way of the world, and the economy of waste, which is the way of God. God's economy is one of waste. Think about what we're doing right now in the eyes of the world. We are wasting time. We could be at Tweet eating a delicious brunch, having coffee, oh man, loaded pancakes. We could be, we could be just doing what we could, we are wasting our time. I want you to think about what prayer is. What prayer is, is wasting time in God's presence. Wasting time in God's presence. Um, and my encouragement for you, I, I, I really hope that this time of Lent is a time where you Truly lean into um, practicing, and I, I don't want to get legalistic with this, but just spending, let's say, an hour in God's presence. When was the last time you just spent, on a regular basis, an hour in God's presence? Okay? 
And I'm not trying to get legalistic with time, but I'm just trying to help you see practically what this could look like. And I'm not going to get into the practicals of how you pray. Talk to me. I'm happy to get coffee. Talk to our leaders. Listen, there's a lot of content online. Okay, you can find it. My thing is, is like we think about what our rhythms are and what we see as normal in our society. And it, and, okay, let's just pick on an easy one. Binge watching Netflix. Normal. Exercising an hour a day. Great. Vacationing for a week a year. Fantastic. Spending an hour in prayer. Wow. Radical. Fanatical. Weirdo. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a sense where we, we see the ramifications of, not, of a church that, that is ramped up in anxiety, ramped up in playing marketing schemes, ramped up in playing a church game in American society when we don't focus on the presence of God in prayer. And like, think about the fountain. And I'm not saying, like, let's just, our anxiety is through the roof. Our mental health is through the roof. And I am not at all saying, get, don't get help. You hear me talk about mental health all the time. Get medicine. All of those things, yes and amen. But anxiety is usually has to get down at the root with like either control or fear. And when we spend time with God and lean in the trust of God, we lean in trusting him. Faith will come later. I think a lot of us in our anxiety, we're just like, God, give us faith. Or whatever we're wrestling with, give us faith. I don't even think that's... I think faith comes out of the foundation of trust. And Mary, if you think about this moment of faith, came out of the fact that she had been with Jesus. She had been trusting Jesus. She had had time back in the story of Luke where it says Martha was in the kitchen and Mary was just reclining at Jesus' feet. She had a trust relationship with Jesus that we must lean into. Um, and so I'm praying that we would, um, in a sense, just uh, lean into the season of, of, of waste, <laughs> wasting our time with God, drawn to this great story of passion. And it's fascinating that the disciples, they're doing all the right things, they think in their mind, and they have this wrong response. And there's this beautiful thing she's done, and it says that this story will be told wherever the gospel is preached. Wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told. You'll be the morons in the story. She'll be the hero. Okay? (laughs) Because you're here thinking she's making this awkward, and he's like, no, 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 no. And I don't assume for a moment that I'm Mary. I assume I'm the disciples. And when I look at people's life that have passion, um, what we see here is that this kind of act of passion I see it, and I end up critiquing their enthusiasm, right? You can't live in Chicago for a long term and sustain that kind of energy. The city will get them, I say. I have my default responses that I align with the disciples and not Mary. I can live into this sense of being always concerned, always measured. A sophisticated Northsider, one of the most spiritual dangers in a city like Chicago. What happens when the church embraces this kind of passion? One, it creates controversy. It creates controversy. Only Mary seems to remember who she's sitting with. And then uh, we fail to understand this passionate love of God. We undervalue the passionate love of God. And it's almost like the church is so busy today doing whatever it can to grow the church out of the pandemic create some kind of marketing scheme that will grow or algorithm on social media that will cause people to come or create some kind of momentum 
or whatever it is, that we've lost the fact that we are the aroma of Christ. We are a broken vessel spent and poured out to let the aroma of Christ pour. And um, there, was a, there was a book by Francis uh, McNutt, is his name, about, um, he titled it, The Almost Perfect Crime. I love that. Such a good title. What he's talking about is how the church, this was written like in the 90s, how the church has removed, and it was written to Catholics, removed healing, and he talks about how Jesus' ministry was he taught and he healed, he taught and he healed, he healed and he taught. How the church has removed the power of transformation and healing, both inner and physical, from Jesus' stories. That we've made, like, like he talks about the Catholic context, how basically it's like every movie, the priest comes for healing, you know that you're about to die, right? Like, you've seen those movies, it's like, oh, the priest is here at the hospital, like, I'm done, the priest is here. We wait till the very end to start talking or thinking about healing. And I feel like out of the pandemic, there's still an inner healing that we need, an inner healing where our, our beauty side is dulled, our, our life feels lifeless, that we, we are not in the land of the living, we're in the land of the zombies that just walking around, protecting moving around, but yet still not fully alive. And Jesus is here saying that this is a, a, a place that would leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. Those who are passionate with God, leave them alone. And the reason that we, what this passion does is, secondly, it critiques our false motives. It critiques our, all Judah says, oh, well, what about the poor? You always have the poor with them. Um, there's been a great um, revival, whatever you want to call it, breaking out in Asbury, University, I don't know if you've seen it. It's been going on for weeks, and there's a lot, of contra- people, a lot of different criticisms, and I understand that people are trying to protect their tribe or whatever. But I'm like, we don't go around going like, you know, don't get therapy unless it leads to social justice right afterwards. Like, I get what they're saying, but it's like, if, if there's transformation happening, Jesus says, leave them alone. And so I think here that there's a sense where there's um, this almost, we've, what the church has done is, is almost the perfect crime. We figured out how to do church and leave the power and ministry of Jesus out of it. It's almost the perfect crime that the American church is in danger of. And so, I mean, think about this. Like, we are here. This all starts, first of all, I just want to encourage you. This all starts in your hiddenness. What you do in secret. What you are doing when no one's watching. What you, listening for the hum listening for the hum of the Spirit as you walk throughout the day, spending that time in God's presence, waking up early, spending before you even start your day to experience, I am God's beloved. Nothing can harm me. I'm His. When's the last time you've spent your time sitting in that? And this is not about what we do for God. You know how goofy and silly it is and weird to make Christianity the foundation about about it being all that you do for God. That's not what we're getting at. It's about first receiving love. Mary's uh, expression was first receiving love. And if we make it primarily about all we do for God, it kind of gets funny. Like, do you think like God's looking at us like, wow, they got up and they're, at, they're sitting in a church service at 10 a.m.? I'm so proud of them. They're so, so amazing. I love them so much now because they did that. What a sacrifice you're all making. No. The foundation for us is not what we do for God. Like, why do we gather? Why do we do this? Some of us, maybe out of fear. Oh, I'm fear of missing out, fear of seeing somebody I like talking to, fear of 
fear of my, like the way I grew up was fear-based. Or maybe it's out of habit. Maybe it's because you, you just have the habit of it. But the majority of us, I think it's because we want to get a little closer to the flame of God. To warm, but, but I think most of us want to get warm by the fire, but none of us want to dare to plunge into the ferocious love of God that G.K. Chesterton called it, to be completely transformed by that flame. So what does it look like for you this morning to say, God, I want to be wrecked by your love. I want to be transformed by the flame, not just warmed. And you think about it. Is this what church's status quo? Is this what the good news of Jesus was all about? Was it just that we would be, you know, nice people, smile to other Christians, take their hands, root for the Cubs, you know, drink coffee, listen to this music? What, what, is this really what Jesus rose from the dead exponentially and why he died a gruesome death? No, the purpose was that Pentecost, that he would pour his spirit on us, that we would become prophets and healers and dreamers, surrendering to the mystery of the spirit within us and a greater surrender to his word. Living in the center of that flame that purifies us and consumes us and makes us whole and brings us peace so that everything aglow would have boldness and joy and courage and creativity and extravagant love. It's never what we do for God. It's always what God has done for us. And Jesus is going to give his life for Mary. And it's, he says that she's anointed me for my death. I love that. This was seven days before Jesus' death. And I, my sanctified imagination wants to believe that that ointment and that aroma was on Jesus when he was on the cross. That she truly anointed him for his death. There's a staggering truth that God loves you You've heard this before, but I just want to say it again. He loves you, not as you should be, but as you are, because none of you this morning in this room are as you should be. That God loves you personally and passionately, not the church, not the world, but you. He loves you. And it's difficult to believe that you are worth the death of anyone, nonetheless the holy God. Do you believe that God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be. Um, here's, here's the test of that. The test is, um, if you would just close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to let you just use your imagination. The doors in the back fling open. Cold breeze come in. And in walks Jesus. He comes to this podium. He looks at us all. makes eye contact with you. He sits down with you. He comes up to you and sits directly in front of you and looks you straight in the eyes. What is Jesus' face saying to you in this moment? What is his words to you? Is it, you know, I'm so sick and tired of your broken promises, your unkept resolutions, your false starts, your hypocrisy, Or is he saying, repent? No. What Jesus is saying to you right now is, I am so proud of you. I am so proud of you that you embrace my love. And you know the only thing that you can do to ever, ever, ever slightly make me concerned is to not receive my love. 
So what, you, what is Jesus' face saying to you? Is it the negative, non-affirming Jesus? Or is it the affirmation of God? Is it the affirming love of God? Open your eyes. God is not a fussy, rude, unrealistic, narrow-minded, judgmental. Think about the God that you maybe grew up with that might have some of those images and think, would I want to hang out with that God that you've been relating to? Because if that's your God, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in that God. I hope you don't believe in that God. I sure don't want to hang out with your God. I don't want to get coffee with him. I don't want to invite him to my home. I don't believe in him. I do believe in the Jesus and the God who loves you unconditionally. Who sees you in your distress and all that you're going through and says your condition is not your conclusion. I have loved you to hell and back. You can, there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from me. I accept you and embrace you for the things you've done in the past, for your fidelity and infidelity. I love you when the moon is out and when the sun is high. That's the kind of Jesus that I believe. And Mary couldn't get over the fact that she was breaking bread with God. I love it. Some of us this morning need to really let go of some things that they've had with God. Really, truly this morning need to shed and let go of some certain images of God. I think of um, one of my favorite movies, um, Dead Poet Society. Robin Williams. Anybody? Uh, if you haven't, go to Milwaukee Avenue. You can see Robin Williams' mural right there. Uh, but there's this great scene called The Ripping of Mr. Pritchard. Famous scene. And he's in there, and there's this book that they're supposed to read, and it's the first line describing what is poetry, what is literature, and it's technical, and it's complicated, and it's heady, and it's weighty. And he says, you see this page? Just rip it out. Rip it out. And he goes, I don't hear enough ripping. They're all hesitant. And then this other professor comes in, hears all the ripping. What's happening in here? What's, what's all this ripping? And he goes, rip it out. Rip out that page. And he says this, keep ripping, gentlemen. This is a battle, a war, and the casualties could be your hearts and souls. That's my heart for you this morning, is that the way you have been relating to God, the casualty is your heart and your soul. If your God has been one of judgment, one of frowning upon you, disappointment, shoulds and oughts and always and nevers, if that is the voice of your God, he is not your God. The casualty is your heart and soul. So this morning, um, Damon, you can come up. I just want to pray for us. I want us to pray. I want to pray for you that if hunger is stirring in this room, we want to pray for you. Um, We're going to have prayer leaders come up and stand beside communion today. Because I want, if, if there is a hunger stirring for wanting to just, you're just hungry for God. We want to pray over that. We want to pray over you. And as we pray and close, Christine's going to lead us in communion in a minute. But my heart for you this morning is, it's often, you know, I was thinking, like, I don't know if this is explicitly said enough. When we come to close a message of God's word, we often come thinking about, like, what do I need to change? Um, 
I don't know, like things of like, what am I doing wrong that I need to, that I'm, con- this con- heaviness, like a heavy conviction. We feel a, a heavy like sense of conviction that blankets over us. We feel a weight of God's presence. And I think what God is doing in this room is not weightiness, but lightness. What does it come to come and receive the lightness of God upon you? Instead of just like, God, I'm sorry I haven't lived this way. Because oh, this sermon could be like, oh man, like I haven't spent enough time in God's presence. Or, I, But if God's just stirring hunger in you, I want to invite you to respond. Um, we're going to have uh, Francesca, Mel Bryan, myself, just up here praying. You guys can come on up. Um, and if anyone here, if God's stirring you with a bit of hunger, I invite you just to stop, to pray with us for a moment. And all we want to do is just pray that God would stir up more hunger in your life. That's it. Not just a general hunger, but a hunger for God's love and spirit. So let's celebrate together the lightness of God's freedom in this room. Amen? The lightness of the freedom that God has in this church. God is ready to love you. And he's ready to say, take any of the, all those forms of discipleship that have been heavy, rip them up. This is about the grace and gentle love of God that's poured out upon you. In Jesus' name. stories in the Bible. I love a dramatic gesture. It's like one of my favorite things. And I love this story so much, partly because it's such a miracle that it's there. I think it's about a woman in a very patriarchal society. It's about a moment that was probably really awkward and embarrassing. And if you really wanted to clean up the image of Jesus, you probably wouldn't talk about women walking in and smashing things and wiping, wiping him with her hair. And yet God saw her heart so thoroughly that that he knew what it meant and he knew what it would symbolize and he knew that maybe several thousand years later someone like me would need to hear it to know that I am seen and I am loved in my daily monotonous obedience in my dramatic gestures and whatever however I'm stumbling towards God Um, and I just want to remind you that we take communion every week as a reminder that this is communal it is part of the practice of the worldwide church and it's very individual it's for you it's between you and god it's a moment for you to be reminded of how much god loves you and how he died for you so we practice an open table you're invited to take communion come pray pray for hunger pray for thirst pray for lightness